Are you listening to this show hoping to get some golden nuggets to help you on your way to recovery? Well, great. I hope that you find them because that is exactly what this show is for. But if you really want to take your recovery all the way, completely commit and get on track with your goals, whether they be finally feeling overall healthy, finally getting pregnant, or finally getting back to training, you'll want to join us inside of the HA Society. Not only is this the perfect community to ask questions and get your support and the accountability that you so often need during these uphill battles with body image and understanding nutrition and incorporating exercise, but it's also a hub of exclusive resources for HAers. All of the HA podcast episodes are released in advance and completely ad-free, so you can listen on the go to the raw, unedited versions, uninterrupted. All of the one-on-one coaching calls, of which we have two a week in different time zones, are uploaded to our private podcast feed so that you can listen to events with practitioners and the past community calls as though they were bonus podcast episodes, because I know how much you love to listen to this kind of stuff. And in these calls, we cover requested topics like overcoming the weight gain fears, communicating with friends and family about our HA, diving into how HA works, and debunking the imposter syndrome that so many of us have around this diagnosis. There's also an entire resources section with lectures, workshops, and training from the past events that are hosted by experts like Sarah Liz King, Laura Lyons, Kaylee McDevitt, Holly Dunn, and many more. As a member, you also get direct access to myself and Coach Ashley in the DMs. So if you have personal questions or need individualized advice about your recovery, we're in there answering your questions in the DMs, as are all of our other members in the group who impress me week after week with how they show up for each other. It's incredible. It's like women are just all becoming mini coaches for each other. It's so good. The HA Society is really the place to be if you're going through recovery, no matter what stage you're at. Whether you have HA or you've got a few recovery periods, we have your back and we're all your new best friends. So come and meet us at thehasociety.com forward slash join. That's thehasociety.com forward slash join and the link is in the show notes for you okay on with the show welcome to the hypothalamic amenorrhea podcast i'm danny sheriff your host certified fertility awareness practitioner functional nutrition counselor and founder of the ha society and of course an ha recovery coach who has walked where you currently are walking. This is the place to come if you care about getting your period regularly. This podcast aims to educate, inform, and keep you motivated on your period and HA recovery track. So let's dive in. But last thing, nothing on the show should be taken as medical advice, so please seek the advice of your physician. Hey everyone, welcome back to the AJ podcast. We have something exciting, different. I have Ashley here with me, but I also have Cassandra Schufelt. Schufelt? I should have checked that with you, Schufelt. Um, she is a professor and the chair of the Division of General Internal Medicine 
Senior Consultant at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and Associate Director of Women's Health Research Center for Mayo Clinic Enterprise. She is a women's health internist and fellowship training in vascular biology and women's health and a certified menopause practitioner. She has several national and international leadership roles in the American College of Physicians, the European Menopause and Andropause Society, and the immediate, oh, Man Menopause Society, ooh, formerly known as the North American Menopause Society, where she is the immediate past president of the society and on the board of trustees. Okay, so <laughs> Dr. Schufelt has over 175 publications in the area of women's health and has also co-authored several scientific position statements on menopause and hormone therapy. She served as a lead member of the 2023 non-hormone therapy position statement for the Menopause Society. Typo, the her NIH funded. Okay, here we go. Her NIH funded research focuses on young women with hypothalamic amenorrhea evaluating the impact on immune and vascular health end scene so <laughs> we're excited to have her here she has done a fair bit of research we're going to dive in but i think it's going to be a fun topic for us to get into a bit more of like what do we know? What are we actually seeing in the research? What is the landscape of what doctors are thinking and what, like where money is going for research and kind of what needs to change? Just like a big overarching conversation. We have some thoughts on where it will go. We don't know where it will truly end because I think there's gonna be a hundred million offshoots. So we're just going to kind of go for it, but welcome. Thank you. Doctor. Thank you for having me. And I commend you for this society and the HA society and and really what you're doing for women's health in terms of, you know, awareness, treatment, management, recovery, because it's such an unspoken rule. And, and honestly, doctors don't know how to treat this condition. We don't really know where to start. And, and I'm sure you and your patients and all your listeners have, have been told, oh, just eat more or exercise less, or here's a birth control pill. And, and we certainly know that that's just a cover up. So I really commend you yeah. for this society and thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, reality is too, it takes a lot of average people to get loud about it who are relatable that have also been through it in order for, you know, the market has to change, like the demands have to change. So we need to be spreading awareness saying this right. isn't normal in order for them to hear us. And, you know, already side tangent, but I feel like that's what happened with PCOS. Like we went really hard on awareness for PCOS and now it's like, it's really there, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of caused a new conundrum for us, which we'll probably get into at some point too. But yeah, it's like uh, the louder we can all be, we're going to get there. So we're really happy to have you here to help us with that mission. Yeah. And you're that statement that you just said about PCOS is exactly right. Um, because if you look at even the number of research studies that have been published in the last eight years mm -hmm. since the um, the FHA guidelines came out by the Endocrine Society, there's been a dismal number of research studies on FHA, on HA, dismal. I mean, we're talking like 130, 130 publications that are, are research studies, not review papers, 
because everybody can write a review paper. You're just reviewing what the data shows. Mm -hmm. These are original research studies. But if you look at the same time point for PCOS, there's over 8,000. Yeah, that's so one that thing you bring right up. There. Yeah, that's one thing that I bring up with my clients is they're like, well, how come my doctors didn't know this? And I, and you're like, we're like not ever bashing doctors. You know what I mean? We're like, honestly, to be honest, if like you even just go in PubMed and just put in PCOS, the amount of articles or hits that it comes up with, like you're saying is astronomical compared yeah. to like, H-A or F-H-A, right? And so it's just like, unless you see one of those 130, 133, you know, like publications, you're probably going to miss it. Yeah, and even even worse is that those publications that are done have very low numbers of women with H-A. So they're making very wide, uh, you know, sweeping mm -hmm. statements about the, the sample sizes are very small, but it just show you that there's a definite need for research in this area. And we do a pretty bad job of teaching doctors about HA. And that's why communities like this that can get together and say, look, my doctor didn't tell me what I need to know. What do I need to know is, is really boots on the ground. And that's what's going to move the research forward and, and move the guidelines and treatment options forward. I mean, it's pretty telling that in the last decade, there's been no medication options. There's been no treatment options really other than trying to recover the underlying cause. So there's there needs to be more research in this area for um, an understanding of not only what the condition leads to, but also how to recover from it. I mean, that's an interesting one you bring up, like the wording. Do you feel like there should be a medical solution for something like functional so, amenorrhea? So that's a very good and interesting question because we know that this is not just about the brain ovary connection. We know that there's a lot of neural transmitters in the brain get, that get fed back or impacted by this condition. And recently in the menopause world, we have a new medication that works on the neurokinin receptors in the brain. And there's a clustering of these, um, these neurotransmitters, neurokinin, um, dynorphin, and kispeptin, mm -hmm that control some of the signaling to the pituitary to tell the ovary to produce estrogen. So do I think that there's just a slam dunk medication out there that we can use? Probably not. But do I think that if there was a way that we could activate this pathway through medication management, because what we do is we block the pathway in menopause care and it shuts off hot flashes. So could the reciprocal be the same? I don't know. And I don't know if there is a, ultimately a medication um, option, but what we do know is a lot of the medications just mask the underlying underlying cause. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting topic in general because when you think about HA, there's such a systematic impact to the body that I think it would be, I mean, I don't want to like tempt science. To, I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of things going on in science that's kind of like spooky and scary in general, right? Although science is so needed, we love it. We're all nerds, you know what I mean? But just thinking about everything that HA impacts, you know what I mean? Um, when it comes to like, just so think about like, when it comes to like, uh, the lack of estrogen and progesterone, just even in the brain, it changes how you like perceive your own body image. Right. So like, we're talking about everything from the brain all the way down to your toes, you know? So I guess for me, I guess it would be interesting if that would even be a viable solution because 
we're talking about everything with HA is also connected to the thyroid, right? And so it's like nothing happens in the vacuum, which is also co connected to like the adrenals, right? So we have like the like HPA and the HPT and the HPO axis that for one pill to like address each one of those axes and then the little fingers and branches that come out from it when the root cause is restored energy availability, like energy balance. It does yeah. kind of, I guess, from my perspective, makes me wonder if a pill is appropriate or if doctors being able to acknowledge, hey, this isn't just a thyroid. This isn't just an adrenal. This isn't just estrogen. You know what I mean? That like yeah. being able to look at a patient from a holistic standpoint of being like, all these are adding up. And yes, they could be so many different things, but because of the presentation, this is likely HA, because from our perspective, like whenever clients just, they, they just want an answer. Yeah. They're not even actually expecting their doctors to fix it for them. They just want a proper diagnosis. Like they just need a direction and then, and then take, and then like, they're pretty good at about like reaching out and then taking like the next steps. But like the, the, the bottleneck that I see from this side is that when they go and they get like a PCOS or a POI or all these other things. And they're just like, their world is so turned upside down because what they actually just need in that moment is a proper diagnosis of what this is. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you're exactly right. I call HA, it's a complex neuro endocrine mm -hmm. disorder. So it doesn't yeah. just impact the ovary. And, and that's where I think so much of the focus has been about estrogen. Look, at the end mm -hmm. of the day, women are lucky that we have a menstrual cycle because we now know what when we don't have one, that's a signal for health because hypothalamic hypogonadism happens in men too. And they yes. don't have that signal so that, that the women have for a menstrual cycle. So we are in some respect lucky that we have the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, right? But you're exactly right in saying that this is so complex mm -hmm. that it impacts so many other areas of the body, the, like the HPA, the HPA axis. So you have elevated cortisol, you got low estrogen, you got low T3, you know, even the stomach itself, you get yes. leptin, adiponectin, decreased insulin, Mm -hmm. increased ghrelin. So this is very complicated. So I do agree that giving a woman back a pill is it going to probably fix it all because there's so many pathways involved. Mm -hmm. What I was suggesting is that some kind of, it's possible that going back to this clustering of neurons could kind of help reverse some of it, but I don't think we're not there yet. The, old, the, the idea is to recognize it and address the underlying cause because the inciting events are really what's what's causing it. And, um, you know, we know that it impacts the brain. Estrogen has a profound impact on the brain mm -hmm. at menopause. So we see, you know, cognitive complaints at menopause, which is a natural and normal state of a woman's life. But when you're 26 and you're walking around with low estrogen, that's going to impact your, re your brain, your cognitive, your anxiety, your depression. And then, you know, at the end of the day, this is way beyond a state like menopause that's normal and natural and health as, as part of a woman's life because you've got you're walking around with low estrogen and high cortisol so to me that's you know in all the research that we've been doing for the last eight years really it comes down to that combination together that's probably 
you know, it's, it's a common theme in all forms of HA, whether it's restrictive eating, psychosocial stress, or, or over-exercise, or a combination of all, we could consistently see this elevation in cortisol and suppression of estrogen. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I do think it's a great, it's a great, um, and, and doctors just want to fix, you know, they've got 10 minutes, and they, yeah. they concentrate a lot on just the estrogen access, and I think just the recognition that this is way beyond estrogen is is an important concept for that we need to start teaching the doctors so 100% yeah that's something that I feel like I'm always like especially when it comes to bone health you know estrogen gets a major you know shout out and it's like hey let's just give them estrogen and I'm not saying that that's not a great step forward but I think whenever you stop there and we don't acknowledge that like leptin plays a role thyroid plays a role and progesterone is a role in bone formation, which is something that, um, I pulled up one of your papers and I was just have like all these comments. I'm like, yes, absolutely. What about this? You know what I mean? Like I have like all these little comments on the side and like you did talk about the role of progesterone, that it's not just estrogen. And I think that like, um, I think just, um, one of my biggest, uh, I guess I can say that through this whole entire thing. So one of them is that like to just stop at estrogen as if a woman's body functions on just estrogen, I feel like is not being curious about the second half of the cycle as in like the women's need for testosterone. You know what I mean? Like we do benefit from that, um, from progesterone, you know, just all those types of things, especially when it comes to bone reformation, like mm -hmm. that is essential and so one of my concerns is when clients are just on estrogen one of my main things is to then just educate them not tell them what to do but educate them like hey you know there's a missing piece of this and it's progesterone so if you are going to go on the route if you're choosing to like not wanting to heal this holistically and there's no judgment about that then mm -hmm. like strongly re like recommending the other half of progesterone because it's very short-sighted to just stop at estrogen. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And we do know progesterone, especially bioidentical progesterone that your, your ovary used to make or your ovaries that continues to make is a very strong, potent anti-inflammatory. Yes. So that's an important component too. We see that um, throughout the, you know, the pandemic with you know, the, the research on COVID and what the, the inflammation does if women are on estrogen with progesterone versus estrogen alone, or even throughout their different, different cycles of the uh, month. I so, saw that. I saw yeah, that. So it I does. Like, I mean, there's yeah. been a lot of research that really does show that progesterone is a, an important component. And, and that brings us back to, you know, this is, you know, we're talking about this complex neuroendocrine disorder, right? But Cortisol plays a huge role in bone health as well, mm -hmm. but cortisol also plays a very large role in inflammation. And what we just recently presented at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine was a study that we took 30 women with HA and we compared them to 30 women that had their monthly menstrual cycles. And we actually confirmed that they had ovulated the month before by checking progesterone. Um, on days 22 through 24, so that we confirmed that these were ovulating women, not just self-reported monthly menstrual cycles. And we actually measured infl inflammatory markers mm -hmm. and cytokines, which is a, 
a marker in the bloodstream that is circulating through our body that tells us how much inflammation we have in our body. It's our body's immune response. So some pro-inflammatory, which is not so good. We don't want pro-inflammatory. We also have cytokines that are anti-inflammatory. And we measured them in women with HA and compared them to women with normal monthly cycles. Now, women without the cycles with HA, we measured them on any day of the month because they didn't have a cycle. But women that had regular monthly menstrual cycles, we actually measured them between day three and five of their menstrual cycles because that's also when a woman's estrogen would be low. So what the results found was that the women with HA had much higher inflammatory pro-inflammatory cytokines. So that just tells you right there that compared to controls, even the controls were a little bit older. These average average women were 26 compared to about 31. But even in, even in a younger woman with HA, there was more pro-inflammatory markers for inflammation. And so that just speaks to the fact that what does having a cyclic form of estrogen and progesterone do in our body, well, it probably does bring down um, inflammation, but cortisol probably plays a role in that as well, because cortisol um, can, in lower levels can be inflammatory as well. So really a kind of an eye-opening research project that we did. Um, I would have expected that we would have seen um, also more anti-inflammatory perhaps, because if you're going to inflame one part of a woman's um, cytokines or the inflammatory markers, maybe there might be a balance with the anti-inflammatory. And we didn't see any differences in the anti-inflammatory. So a little bit more inflammation in women with HA. Now, you know, take that a little bit step further. What we found when we looked at the same women is that they're their blood vessel function or how well they open and close their, their small blood vessels. We know in the setting of menopause, estrogen can, well, we know estrogen can promote nitric oxide. We know it can open and dilate blood vessels. So we wanted to see what these blood vessels would do with young women with HA that don't have estrogen. And the way I give an analogy to this is Imagine you take a rubber band out of the drawer that's brand new, it's really stretchy, and you're like, this is a great rubber band, it opens and closes, I'm going to be able to wrap whatever up with it, bundle of letters. Um, if you take a, a rubber band out that's kind of been in the back of the drawer for a while, it's a little chalky, and you're opening it, it's not as flexible. Well, that non-flexibility is what we have found in women with HA. It's not all women with HA, but it's about one in every three women have a very early signal that their blood vessels are not opening and closing. Now, is that bad? No, it's not bad because we're finding it because if you leave this unchecked, it can be bad. But the good news is, is if you reverse your HA and we're gonna be looking at this, does it reverse that flexibility of the, band, of the, the rubber band? Probably, but at the end of the day, it's identifying another key area of of, of that this is complex, right? This is not just about, um, you know, the bone or the period or fertility. It's also now impacting small blood vessels. So um, I think that's an important sign because it's not every woman, it's about one in every three women. Our new research is trying to identify, is it the over-exercising? Is it the under-eating or is it or disordered eating? Or is it the psychosocial stressors that is causing this signal? Or is it just having cortisol in your bloodstream? So um, that's the new area of research that we're delving into.
Mm-hmm. So I always tell patients is they, yes, we have found this, but it's just another signal, just like your bones, right? That we need to reverse it. We need to get you back on track because we can get you back on track um, with all areas, with fertility, with bone health. Um, and, and now we're looking at heart health. And you know what? No one's really looked now at brain health. And, um, and so that's another area of needed research. So I love that you brought that up because a lot of our clients all, I think I can be very confident are very health conscious. And these are the people that are crushing veggies, multiple veggies per day. They're crushing veggies. They are working out their cardio, like every day or all of the lean proteins, all the lean proteins they've taken. And so it's, to our conversation before this podcast started, like if like they were to go to the doctors, they would be applauded as like the healthiest. You are the standard. You are the standard of what society needs to strive for. Look at your colorful vegetables. Look at your plate. Look at your, your discipline and air quotes. Obsession is not discipline. I'm gonna put that out there. But moving on, all these things, and yet to find out that their cholesterol is sky high. And so the other day I had to, you know, I have a a new client and I was like, if this salad, look here, I love a good salad. If I'm going out to eat y'all, I'm ordering a salad because I can do that because I have my cycle and I'm ovulating, but because I'm not making that salad for myself at home, I'm not chopping up all the things I'm not doing it. So Ashley is ordering a salad, but I had to ask her, Hey, you've been eating this way in this salad for X amount of years and your cholesterol is through the roof. Mm-hmm. If this was enough to keep you from having high cholesterol, it would have done it by now. You don't need to veggie harder. You don't, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and so to your point of these are the ideal health that doctors want us to look like, but yet they're coming up with you know, cardio, you know, arteries that are just not opening and closing as fast Mm -hmm. as they need to be. Like they are the dry rubber band in the back of the drawer. And Mm -hmm. I think for, I think it's, I love that analogy. I'm going to keep it like, I'm going to like replay this for my clients all the time is because like, there's more to it. And like, you can't reach this optimal health without your hormones restored. Right. I always say, so I coined this term a while back because I was trying to convince doctors that this is a problem, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sitting at a roundtable discussion at the NIH in Washington, D.C., you know, which thankfully has had, I've had eight years of continuous funding in this area, but I've got to convince the next grant cycle that we need more money for the next grant because it's been, it needs to continue. Uh. I know, right? <laughs> But it's like, um, I promise it's a problem. Like, it I is promise. a problem. And so you're sitting around. And at the time I was, I, I was doing my research. I now live on the East coast and at Mayo Clinic in Florida, we have a Mayo Clinic in Rochester and a Mayo Clinic in Arizona. I was in Los Angeles. I grew up in Southern California and, and, and I was in Southern California when I first started this research. And one of the NIH doctors asked me if this was only a problem in Los Angeles. And I almost fell <laughs> off my chair because um, Stop. the research is worldwide. I mean, these people, women are worldwide. We make up 52% now of the world. 
There's um, women on the East Coast. To there that are women on the East Coast. And I exist. can tell you there's women on the East Coast because I'm enrolling right now for my study. And I actually have a travel <gasps> stipend to fly women into Florida. Yeah. To, that are coming from I'll also all say the uh, mammoth, a mammoth amount of our client base is Europe. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm yeah. getting, you know, and, and I'm getting because we're now opening an international registry because I think in order to convince that we need more money for this, we have to prove that it's a problem. And unfortunately, we're having to prove that it's a problem because no one's talking about menstrual mm-hmm. cycles. And if they are, they're usually asking at the doctor's office, when was your last menstrual cycle? Because they only want to know if you're pregnant. That's usually when you're asked about it because you're at the OBGYN and it's usually a medical assistant. And then the third thing is that these women look so healthy on the outside, but they're not healthy on the inside. So I, you know, that's, they, they are the walking unwell, you know, there's that term I coined because you have the walking well, everybody looks, you look great. You look physically fit on the outside and, but on the inside you're, you're unwell. So um, I did have to really, you know, in order to show that this is a problem, we need to start collecting how prevalent it is. And I think that that's going to be a key factor because if you look even at studies that show irregular menstrual cycles have been associated with future heart attacks, which they have, um, most people chalk that up to PCOS. And I'm not downplaying PCOS. I think it is just as an important risk factor for secondary amenorrhea or amenorrhea that stop uh, amenorrhea itself, stopping your period. But I also think that this is a condition that is underreported under-recognized and understudied. And so that's where- And just happens to be confused with PCOS a lot. So it, it sounds like we hate on it, be. but it's just, it, yeah. It yeah. just, women get slapped with the diagnosis of PCOS, which has its own implications, but it is a wrong way to go down the pathway. If you're, if you're misinformed that you had PCOS and I screen women all the time for HA and I'll look at someone's ultrasound and go, this doesn't fit the criteria for- PCOS. Thank you. And oh, look at how <laughs> low their LH is compared to their FSH. This thank, is not I, this is not you. PCOS. So this is not difficult. This is not, like not this is not rocket science. Like I almost like come out of my chair every single time and I'm like, you do not, and I hope this is not insulting, you do not need a bazillion years and a thousand dollars in student loans to tell if someone has PCOS it shows up in their blood work yeah. and you actually cannot miss it. Yeah. If you have suppressed LH, luteinizing hormone, that is AHA until you prove me otherwise. If your mm-hmm. estrogen is low, FSH is normal range mm-hmm. and LH is oversuppressed or undetected. Um, and so, and you've had three yeah. or more months of no menstrual cycle. So that to me, while it is a diagnosis of exclusion, I mean, so is PCOS. So, uh, you know, it's really taking a thorough evaluation and coming at it with, are there symptoms? Is there, what's the exercise, exercising history? What's the eating history? And I think that's a really interesting comment, Danny, that you made about the eating, because in our study on food diaries, which we did, we took those 30 women with HA, comparing them to the age matched or the matched controls that were getting their monthly cycles, their calorie amount was exactly the same. It was not statistically different. We did not see a difference in terms of the calorie intake. It was the content of the calorie intake that was completely 100%. Different. 
Yes. I so, love that this actually didn't fully connect that there would be research to back this up. Oh, yeah. I thought we, we were are... just like anecdotally observing, like, look, I know you're eating 2,500 calories, but it's rice cakes and it's just not going to happen. Yes. And it's heavy yeah. carbohydrate. I mean, I we're about to submit this to the endocrine society meeting because we actually looked at the um, food content, caloric intake and food content in respect to the heart health. And then we also looked at it in respect to the bone health. So we're going to be hopefully presenting this um, in June at the Endocrine Society meeting. So stay tuned for that. But I think that that's just- We want to be there. Component. Yeah. <laughs> that's Washington, amazing. Um, that's the best paid <laughs> work trip. We're submitting yes, it to ourselves. And we're, going to prove it and we're going hey are you trying to recover and maybe even fall pregnant naturally i thought that might be you and if so we have created our best ever yet resource for you totally free this is a master class i've called it my master class because i have put everything into this right this master class is designed for you if you have ha or have had HA and are dealing with suboptimal cycles and you're serious about restoring those babies to full optimization and you want to create the ideal foundation for a pregnancy, this is going to be for you. So in this masterclass, I'm going to provide you a lot of things, including a lot of case studies, mine, Ashley's and Mishi's, as well as lots of our past clients and what their challenges were and what they had to do to overcome it. And we cover a really wide variety of types of cases of HA. So everything from primary amenorrhea and missing periods for years and years to short-term amenorrhea and what we did to handle that situation as well. And how long it took these people to go from HA to pregnant with this system and how long it took them to go from HA to ovulating, of course, with this system. So lots of information, lots of case studies, lots of stats. We go through why this is not a weight gain plan and how we actually divide you into phases, the three phases of HA, and determine what your starting point is so that you have a good idea of where you need to start with your actual changes in lifestyle and nutrition changes. We even cover questions like HA and people with a normal BMI and recovery for people who have had HA for too long. There's so much in this 60-minute masterclass. Y'all, I'm impressed. And at the end, I'll also be running you through how to get a free HTMA, hair tissue mineral analysis through us, which is a part of our process for recovery and preconception clients that we're happily going to give you for free 99 as a massive thank you, of course, for joining the masterclass. So go to the hasociety.com forward slash masterclass or head to our website and you'll find a link for it and find when the next available presentation is going to be. That's the hasociety.com forward slash masterclass. Um, I love that you bring that up because that is um, exactly kind of what we do. We actually never ask our clients to track calories um, just because in a coaching capacity now, obviously it's research, trigger. research is it's essential. Okay. Like, so like nothing's ever black and white. So there's that, but in a coaching capacity, like we actually don't ask our clients, some of our clients do, and, and it is helpful because some of those clients right now, like 
they are well above 3,500 calories and she just ovulated. And had she just stopped at 25, this chick would never have recovered. So there's that. Um, but like our, like our thing is that we take a look through pictures. Like we do a food view, we do pictures, we take a look. And so we give specific feedback based on what they're eating. And that allows us to see, are you eating rice cakes? Are you eating water sticks, which are celery? You're like air frying that with no oil. Is there like, are you using fat or things you can see it? Like, you know, like you can see it. And that is why I believe our clients recover so much faster is because Mm -hmm. we just take the guesswork out of, well, I guess we'll just keep adding these calories and we'll keep adding these calories. We're able to specifically look at exactly what they're eating. And generally there is one to two macros that they are completely like, you know, so it's not just enough to tell everyone to eat high fat. If someone's, I mean, I had a client who legit, I mean, she was crushing a good amount of fat, but Mm -hmm. she like, it took six months to get her to increase her carbs. And once she did, she recovered and, um, she was convinced that she had premature, well, not premature that she was entering in peri menopause. Cause she was like 42. And mm-hmm. so it's just so important that no, at 42, you can cycle. Yep. Not everything's peri menopause and her labs didn't match up. And thankfully her doctors told her that it wasn't that, but it's not just enough to give somebody the same blanket statement because that not, because that's potentially not what they're struggling with. Right. And so again, how do we expect like the same blanket calorie number goal? Yes. Or Is that what we mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's probably yeah, every woman's different, but um in our research, we did find that women with HA had very high protein intake too. Mm. Yeah, I see but I see that less that frequently, lean- but I find that in like if we have it depends on the um the the culture that they're in. Like if we get mm. a crossfitter or a bodybuilder, high or protein for sure. But if we get anyone else, <laughs> the protein's not there. And if it is there, yeah, it's just yeah. chicken breast. Sorry. Yeah, I feel like I, it is. And it's, um, and then high fiber. Oh yeah. That was that us. One. Oh that yeah. Was. Well, I used to do that too. I mean, like my fiber count was so high. And again, because you get a pod, eat high fiber, eat high fiber. It helps you detox. Well, first off you, you need amino acids to detox, but never mind that. You know what I mean? But eat high fiber. And so I kid you not, I'll have clients coming to me eating 75 grams of fiber per day. Yeah. And I'm like, I am going to need you to throw in some glucose, just some yeah. genuine glucose. But yes. So I would say like the macro community is probably generally always high fiber and protein. High protein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Low fat. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's interesting that, that, that was like really common in the study. So, and I wanted to backtrack really quick too, like we, cause we're kind of talking about the, tr- the challenge here is diagnosis, which is like so frustrating because that's um squ- like square one. Like you probably feel like you've been stuck at square one for so long. Like, I'd love for us to be done with diagnosing so that we can talk about solutions more frequently, but like you're still there at awareness, trying to get doctors to understand and see that this is real and to- well- and then the other side of it to say is that not just the diagnosis, but also the awareness, because there's still a bias that this is an athlete athlete issue. Yes. 100%. And, like you're and, not thin enough. You're not sick enough. Like this like is just athletes. You don't look like you could have HA because you're not an athlete. <sighs> I mean, come on. And, and the, 
the idea that you could just have stress-induced amenorrhea is real. You know, I had a, one of my participants that in my study, the initial study, she was 21 years old. She had just lost her mom suddenly mm. and she went into HA and it was, she wasn't over-exercising. She wasn't restrictive eating. I can tell you that right now. It was just the stress-induced cause, the psychosocial stress that she went through. And that brings up a fact of the matter is that this also is not, you know, we need to understand the, the, the scope of diversity in this, mm-hmm. um, in this area. And that's one of the calls for my, um, my, my, my leading into opening a, an international registry, because we need to understand what other countries you're mentioning that Europe has a lot of them right now. We're getting a lot of calls from them. I get emails and, and calls from Europe as well as the Middle East right now, you know, Mm -hmm. what is that instant kind of such stressful events that are going on from, from turmoil or, you know, even at home here, you know, we have not even dealt with what's happening in, we call it the blue zone here in in Mayo Clinic. These are underrepresented areas that have very, very poor access to care, to healthy foods um, and very poor, poor, you know, socioeconomic situations. So what is that profound impact due to the prevalence of HA? Because if you don't know where your next paycheck's coming from to pay your rent and you don't, you know, you're going to feed your child before you feed yourself or your family before you feed yourself, you know, that's a whole other area of restrictive Mm -hmm. patterns of eating that we haven't even broached what that impact is um, on, on this condition. And, and so I think the need, there's definitely a need to understand above and beyond what we're, we're, what we know is the diagnosis, because I think that this is much more common. It is estimated that it's about 30% of secondary amenorrhea. I can probably tell you it's a lot higher than that, as you could probably tell me as well. Um, but even at that, if you take into account how many women get secondary amenorrhea that's about 1.8 million women in the u.s alone so common something we're curious about (laughs) yeah prevalence rate yeah you brought up a few things you know it'd be really interesting too i mean not that you need ideas for research but if you ever ran out of ideas i am an idea woman but one of those things is what like one of the biggest things that we really tried to be mindful of even as like we do intakes is weight bias and I and like we already know that that's an issue in like the medical community okay passing over acknowledge check but even which what I think that that trickles down and makes the diagnosis of HA even more difficult is because there is a weight bias involved there and so I think would just be the coolest thing to show doctors like to give them a pamphlet of like this range of body types have all developed clinical HA, you know what I mean? Because I think sometimes we just need to visually see a real person who's had HA, who um, challenges your idea of what this person with this condition would look like, right? And I think sometimes just shaking it up, just, you know what I mean? Like, what would just be so important because again, that's actually something that our clients, when, when, when they're struggling to accept it, I mean, I mean, that was me for five years, like rolling around us, yeah. years. Yeah. For five years with no cycle. Cause I was like, there's no way, you know what I mean? Um, but to have, 
uh, I don't even know, visually representative different types of bodies who have had a clinical HA where you can't argue whether they had it or not. And it just shows that like this happens at different body sizes. So I think yeah. like we tend to get a lot of clients at different body sizes. Yeah. Um, personally, I think it's just because probably Danny and I aren't like relatively on like the leaner or super jacked because like people, people get drawn to people who look like you. Right. So we, I think that we get like the more, the people who don't believe that they possibly have HA and then they see us or like, wait they had it okay there's a possibility that I had it you know like I have it so yeah just like the diversity just like you're talking about the different types of HA or reasons and subsects I think that would be the coolest so that's where you know right now if you look at the literature it says having a BMI of 24 or higher mm -hmm. a BMI of 24 or higher is probably PCOS and that's where we probably need to break the stigma and that's actually where collecting worldwide information for women with true HA diagnoses, validated with hormones that they have, and entering in a registry, we'll be able to collect a whole a host of BMI ranges yeah. to then say, look, these are women with documented HA. We've got labs, we've got this, we've got, you know, these are all gonna be part of the registry. And, and so we'll be able to actually prove that you don't have to be a skinny thing to be diagnosed with HA, you can actually, you know, this is the whole, you know, I agree with you a hundred percent. There's, there is a misogyny of obesity in our society. And there's so much bias in, you know, telling women, if you're thin, you're fit. And that's not necessarily the case. And then, and this is what, you know, you know, women are less likely to be referred for chest pain if they're thin or to a cardiologist to be evaluated if they're having symptoms of chest pain. If they're thin, we've published that research that showed that there's mm. a, there's an implicit bias that doctors have and there's an implicit bias in our world, but it's having yeah. to break through that mm. to try to convince, again, going back to the whole premise of this is a problem mm -hmm. and the menstrual cycle is, is a vital sign. Right. I mean, it's, it's vital for our health. Oh, I, that just fired like something in my brain just like lit up and I don't know exactly, but I think because what if it's because Dr. C thinner or non-obese, wherever you want to draw the line, BMI, whatever, as healthy that in their mind, they're just like, it's just this population that's unhealthy. And so what this registry will do will open up that walking unwell. You know, I think that's the way that you termed it of like everyone that they're deeming as healthy is actually not right. And, and that's why they actually don't think it's a problem because they have already in their heads told themselves that this person is healthy. I've had, um, when I had my, one of my ultrasounds done, before asking me my labs, asking the symptom, asking, even doing the ultrasound, he was like, I already, I already tell, and look at you, you don't have PCOS. And then he came back and I'm like, oh, well, well, you must be God's gift to medicine. I am so glad that your eyes are so good and you don't ask any questions, no intake, but you're able just to look at me walking down the hallway, right? Then he later diagnosed me with PCOS, you know what I mean? Which and no one even looked at my labs because they were all suppressed. And I was just like, okay, okay. So like, what are we doing here? Right. But to your point, he automatically was like, there's no possible way. Nope. Nope. This person's well, this, this, you know, like this person's fine. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. 
Yeah, the walking in well. And so this registry will be opening probably the first quarter of 2024. We are actually finalizing um, a contract with a company in case women don't have the ability to get their labs done, that there's a blood spot technology that we can grab hormones mm -hmm. from. And so we're working with that to try to get that. But the purpose of the registry is not just to characterize how prevalent it is, because but it's also to understand the experiences that women are going through with this condition again, because it's so understudied. And um, and also to ask those questions, what did your doctor tell you? <laughs> what did your what testing did you have done before you actually got a formal diagnosis? Or did you even get a formal diagnosis? And what led you? Was it social media that led you to understand that this condition is something that it needs to be evaluated further? So, you know, I and then we're also obviously looking at health outcomes because we want to know how this impacts um, health. I mean, there was a recent published study that was one of the one of those 130 original studies that mm -hmm. looked at sexual function in women with HA. And that was really interesting to see that there's a big difference in sexual health. And that probably also has to do with body imaging is not just but but low estrogen has a very potent effect on you know, sexual function. And, and so it's a combination of both. But, you know, we also want to look at what happens after women get pregnant, because the beautiful thing about this condition is it's reversible and you can have a child. It's not like um, premature ovarian insufficiency or premature menopause where that's a infertility. This is a temporary form of infertility, but once you reverse the condition, you can get pregnant. But we haven't also looked at what happens to women who get pregnant after this condition? Do they have early yeah. deliveries? Do they have small babies? Mm -hmm. Do they have, you know, what was their weight gain trajectory during pregnancy? Because it still is, you know, as much as this, as, as there is an underlying recovery, you still have the psychological component of weight, you know, mm -hmm. that, that is a large proportion of this condition. So. Well, yeah. Just well, anecdotally just anecdotally, um, we have not noticed in our, because we have a focus on recovering HA and helping women get pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a kind of our jam. Uh, and there hasn't been an anecdotal notice of women because they always email back and they're like, here's the birth story. And like, here's the picture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank you for your help. Everyone's like going to term, you know what I mean? And that's good. And but, but the other interesting is, are they going to term and having small babies? Ooh. yeah yeah not sure not sure yeah no it's not small my child was not small. <laughs> she was not small. and the other the other one thing that'll be important is is it was it natural recovery from ha mm -hmm. or did they go seek fertility treatments Girl. to get pregnant because that's actually a bit different mechanism probably is, the mechanism of the mechanism of natural recovery and re and under you know reversing the underlying cause that probably leads to a healthy normal reproductive re reproductive birth but if you go to get fertility treatment to just push out a gonadotropin which was in the injection they give to then ovulate that still isn't under treating the underlying condition so no, the body is still unwell yeah and you're so forcing that pregnancy, pregnancy onto a little bit different so i'm not suggesting it that must be. all women with this condition can't have a healthy pregnancy because certainly we are not noticing it and that's excellent but is there a signal for women who have to go get fertility yeah. treatment well the other thing that would be interesting oh my gosh so many so many <laughs> and we only have five minutes ash and so I okay. okay this is gonna be fast but 
one thing that we do notice is that when our HA clients do gain the weight and they do get pregnant and they've overcome this magic, this, this, this unimaginable thing, and then they start getting prenatal care, it goes right back to don't gain too much weight. And then, so they do almost hold their breath the entire pregnancy because they're generally still mentally in a fragile state of just recently recovering, whether it's three months, six months, it, it takes a while to emotionally like recover and your body is faster to then be able to go to so many doctor's appointments and hear them be like, don't gain too much weight. Don't, you know what I mean? And it's just like, I mean, thankfully I had a great midwife and I was like, so let me tell you about how I got here and I won't be discussing my weight and like, I'm fine. You know what I mean? And thankfully she was, but not everybody is able to advocate for themselves that, that way. And so they just go back into this place and then that impacts their postpartum. Right. So I would love to say that long-term because then what happens postpartum? Yeah. After hearing for nine months, be careful, don't gain weight. Right. You know, to someone who just got over FHA. Yeah. Yeah. And postpartum is a very vulnerable period because you go from very high levels of estrogen to very low levels of estrogen. So it would be also interesting to see what happens to a woman who's had HA, who had low levels of estrogen in her brain, who develops kind of depression or anxiety, because we know those are common. What happens to them after they recover, go through pregnancy, and then has a sudden loss of estrogen after pregnancy? Are they more prone to getting postpartum depression? You know, so, so these are all interesting, like working hypotheses because at the end of the end, because the other, at the end of the day, estrogen is important, progesterone is important, testosterone is important, and the long-term health consequences of it is important. So there's so many unanswered questions um, going forward. And I love that you have a pulse on women, women who are recovering because it's through you that we can come up with these questions. And if you start to say, hey, we've noticed this, or we've noticed in our, you know, long, you know, our group of women that some of them aren't feeling really good after they have their baby, or some have reported very small children, um, birth weights, or some have reported, you know, early um, delivery, not, not preeclampsia or high blood pressure problems, but maybe just went into spontaneous early delivery. So you know, this is where as a scientist, as a clinical scientist, you know, working with groups and advocacy groups such as George, we can really start to make a footprint and move the needle and get more answers. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's women's health is, wow, I could go on. Women's <laughs> health is very under, under um, represented and under appreciated and understudied and underfunded. Um, but when you when you have to really convince a group that this is a problem, that's even a harder hill to climb. And so, um, you know, your 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 group reminds me of, you know, it's like when they first started um, putting seatbelts in the cars, right? They were all seatbelts designed for men. And so okay. it wasn't until a group of mothers got together, and they didn't have social for media sure. back then. But it was a group of mothers that got together and said, look, I can't put my child in this seatbelt. I can't even wear this seatbelt. It's too big for me. So they're the ones that then lifted, the, the, that recognized that men and women are different and children are different too. Then it went so far 
as the next step was airbags. All the airbags in the cars were designed for a, a man's size body. So until you actually get yeah. a group of women who say, this isn't right, something needs to be done, the things are going to get done. So I liken that analogy to what you're doing in the HA society in terms of what, you know, you've got a group of women that are saying, this ain't right, and we need to do something about it. But it's taking what your information and sharing it with researchers like me and research from researchers that are around the world that we can make a really big and impactful difference. So I really do. Oh, yeah. We would love to team up. We're happy to be the disgruntled moms of the community. hundred <laughs> percent. We love you know, that. I, I, here's another tagline. I say, I say, you want something done? You ask a busy woman. <laughs> you ain't absolutely we both have we both have children and we're like doing the most you know yeah. trying to figure this out yeah. you know and and this is a total uh we don't have to get into it but just like to your point about these these outcomes we obviously less of our clients have had children before but we do get them we definitely definitely get women who are like so i had children through treatment mm-hmm. but now i'm serious about ha and if we could also yes because that's a common question is, well, can I just go and do the treatment thing and then deal with HA? But they definitely dig themselves a deeper hole at a minimum. I have one very interesting case right now. She's great. She seems chill, totally normal person, but she had HA, took FSH injection route. It was very successful. So they did not do the IUI. They did natural conception. She had twins. So her body was already on struggle street. Somehow every now and then someone is just like super responsive, which is always a surprise because it's not what we typically see. But now like she, she, her estrogen will not budge. She's weaned. The children are two, will not budge. Like the hole is deep, deeper than we see for, uh, for typical, but we don't have enough case studies to sit these women down and be like, here's what the science says you're walking into. If you do, if you go this, this route. So I totally see the value in that. We would love to be able to help. And I just want to kind of commend you and what you're doing, because not only is like, yes, HA and women with missing periods, like this is all important, but HA is also a spectrum. And there are women who still have their periods, but they're pretty much still dealing with this problem. Right. And there's probably even more of them, you know, walking around, like they're just a little bit genetically more robust or something like that. And, and those women are also getting their PCOS diagnosis, or they're also getting just told like, well, you should be fine. Oh, well, we'll just do some treatment. Like, you know, you're not exercising too much. You have your cycle and they're in an even worse position because they don't have this big red alarm to tell them um, something's definitely missing. I feel even more sorry for those people because their body appears to be functioning fine on the outside. Uh, But research like yours will also just help honest, like honest to God, most women are dealing with low hormone function. Let's just be real. And as much as HA sounds like a really specific extreme manifestation of that issue, nah, like it's happening across the board. Some people are just not losing their period or it's not just they're not quite as depleted yeah Yeah, there's definitely a spectrum and Mm -hmm. and and that and that brings up the point of just because you get your period back to the other you know the adrenal access the thyroid access you know the brain access does that all recover at the same time and in the same order because it's probably that you because you can ovulate before you get your period back right we know that 
but um, getting your period back, we don't know the order of recovery because there's so many organs involved. And so uh, I was telling this to people all the time, all the time, when you're like, all where's my period? I'm like, I don't know, maybe all of that energy you're taking in is like dealing with your like awful blood pressure and yeah. you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. 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 So can yeah. I close by telling you uh, for women that are in the U.S., we have an ongoing study that I, I we have a travel stipend that involves two visits to the Mayo Clinic in Florida. And we're actually using Fitbit trackers to track exercise patterns in women with HA. And we're looking at the vascular health. So that blood vessel stretchiness, that rubber band at the beginning and at the end of three months. And we're just asking, and then during that three months, we are just looking at heart rate variability, sleep cycles, exercise patterns. And then we are measuring hormones at the beginning and the end, as well as um, the food diaries monthly and some questionnaires. So that's an ongoing study. Women get to keep their Fitbits at the end. We scrub them clean, you get to keep it. And then um, it's a hundred dollars for participating. And then of course we have a travel stipend for those that live in um, the non-Western states in the US at $600 and then $900 if they live in the Western states to get here. So, you know, I always say you better women's health, you're going to better men's health. So at the end of the day, you better HA, you know, participating, she participating in HA research is going to better HA research from both sides. So thank you for having Yeah, you're not me. wrong. Sell, sell it to the men as being good for them and we'll yeah. get, we'll definitely get what we need. <laughs> yeah. And I also think that this is really huge. Like I am kind of one of those things, like I don't want to hear anybody complain unless we're being part of the solution. Like, yes, let's, you know, let's vent. But like, if you're like, we're upset that there's not enough research, then like, let's take the time and do this. If you know, like, we want yeah. to see women's health expanded, then like, let's take the time to do this. And so like, I think that this is a great opportunity to not just be a, a victim of a doctor not listening to you because we have one right here who wants to hear and do all the things. And this is something that we should be yeah. jumping on as a community. Um, so where where can people join, join it? So I have, um, I will send you a QR code that you can put up. Um, it is a QR code that will take women directly to our information um, questionnaire that'll um, and explain the study. And I also have a link that I can, that takes you to the Mayo Clinic website to, yeah, that discusses the study. So that would be Beautiful. fantastic. Yeah. And Beautiful. I also look we'll put that in the show notes. The, the, the one that's coming out in 2024, that a registry, that would be good to. Yeah, that will be, I will be completely in touch to make sure that the registry information is also, because I think that's going to be yeah um, huge in terms of really, really understanding yeah. how common this is. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, John, you. Dr. Dr. Schufelt. We appreciate your time. If we can ever help you with anything that you need, please let us know. Future studies, that kind of thing. Um, and we look forward to seeing what you work on in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I'll, I'll send that information so you can share with your reader, reviewers and your listeners. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And you have an amazing day. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hey there, it's me, Danny, and I want to tell you about TempDrop as a fertility awareness method tracking option. So many of you guys know that we actually recommend the fertility awareness method both as you're going through recovery and 100% after you have gotten some cycles back 
and you're starting to move forward for the rest of your reproductive years. So TempDrop itself is a wearable fertility monitor and we love it. It's a wearable device. So you put it around your arm and you can use that instead of taking your temperature manually with a thermometer each morning. So I'm personally a big fan of the manual tracking. All of us at the HA Society are, and that's the method that we use, you know, just using a good old thermometer. We use that with our clients because it's the best way to use it as a diagnostic tool, as a practitioner. And it's also the best way to ensure if you're trying to avoid pregnancy that you don't get pregnant. However, manual temping for many reasons is just not always an option. When you're in the middle of recovery, again, we do recommend manual temping. But once you're cycling, the temp drop is actually a really great hack. So it gives you basically everything you need to effortlessly track your fertility status, like where you are in your monthly cycle. So you wear the temp drop sensor while you're sleeping for accurate basal body temperature readings without the stress of early morning wake-ups. So I personally love this because with a toddler, my wake-up times are all over the place and the occasional sleep disruptions make using an oral thermometer a lot more difficult. So TempDrop's accompanying charting app enables you to track an array of symptoms alongside your basal body temperature. This includes tracking your cervical mucus if you've been using OPKs. And then it also gives you sleep insights too. So you can combine these fertility signs all in one place and that will help you identify your fertile window, confirm ovulation, plan for your period. And if you're trying to get pregnant, you know, identify whether or not you are pregnant. So whether you're trying to conceive or avoiding pregnancy or you want to chart for health reasons like HA recovery, making sure your cycle's not slipping back in the HA direction, TempDrop makes fertility awareness accessible to all women, even if you don't have regular cycles or sleeping patterns. So track your ovulation in real time with the TempDrop, and we are lucky enough to have a 15% off code. So if you go to their website, they're usually having a sale, but you can stack this code on top of the existing code. So just go to tempdrop.thehasociety.com and use the code AFHASociety. I think too, if you just go to tempdrop.com and and use um, AFHASociety at the checkout, that will work too. So happy temping and good luck. This episode is brought to you by Grassland Nutrition Beef Liver Capsules. Did you know that in terms of nutrient density, beef liver actually blows vegetables and fruits out of the water? If you're a client of mine, you have already been instructed to eat beef liver either fresh or in capsule form. I recommend it for anyone and everyone who is, of course, dealing with amenorrhea and fertility challenges out there, but I may even recommend it for just everyone in general. Get your husbands on it. Get your partners on it. If you have a history of HA and add on top of that, maybe a history of the pill, maybe you've been pregnant before, you know, through treatments or other, like you've just, your body's been through anything, you know, you're absolutely 100% dealing with a nutrient deficiency of some kind. And while it's true that testing is going to be the best way to understand those exact deficiencies, Eating nutrient-dense real food is going to be one of the most important next steps that you take with 
or without testing. So I've been using and recommending grassland nutrition beef liver capsules for years now. And the capsule form makes it so easy to get your liver in every day. And I appreciate the transparency of this product in particular above others. So in case you're wondering, it's completely natural. This is freeze-dried beef liver in capsules. It's organic. It's made from Australian beef. And my favorite of their products is the liver with kelp because of the iodine from the kelp, which is important for overall thyroid function, which is often low in women with underperforming hormones. So rather than eat seaweed snacks every day, I get to take this beef liver with the kelp for my iodine. So if you're recovering or working on a fertility journey right now, do not skimp the nutrient rich source of beef liver. Get 10% off your order with the HA Society and support your favorite podcast along the way. They ship to most countries, so you should be covered. Just go to grasslandnutrition.net and use HA Society, just HA Society, at the checkout for the 10% off. That's grasslandnutrition.net with the code HA Society. Thank you so much for listening today, guys. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could head to iTunes specifically and leave a rating or review, that would help so much because it makes it easier for other people with HA who are Googling around to find the podcast really easily. So if you do that, you're doing a service to all of the women.